Welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Before we turn to our next guest, D. Knight, the author and very well vetted historian regarding the Ukraine-Russian NATO crisis, wanted to provide some history and context that has been completely absent from our news media wall-to-wall coverage of the Russia invasion. We will follow that history and context with our interview with D. Knight. Thank you for staying tuned. On February 21st, 2022, in response to increased attacks on the Donbass by the Ukrainian forces, President Putin announced that Russia recognized Donetsk and the Lugansk People's Republic in the East Ukraine area as sovereign entities. Despite the fact that we are told to not believe anything Russia or Putin say, I feel it is important to share their perspective. At the signing, the decrees were signed stating that the decision by Putin and Russian government was based on the will of the people of those two breakaway provinces, and also because Ukraine rejected the peaceful settlement of the conflict in accordance with the Minsk agreements. As a consequence, after the ratification of those treaties, Russia can legally deploy its troops in the Donbass region, as well as supply the republics with any weapons. During the night, units of the 8th Field Army of the Russian Armed Forces have begun to enter the territory of those areas. So for the first time, according to Russia, Russia is putting troops in those areas. Russia followed those announcements by issuing an ultimatum to the Kiev regime. The Zelensky government must immediately stop fighting in the region and obey the ceasefire. Should this fail to happen, Putin said it will bear the full responsibility for the further development of the situation. This according to a February 22nd article in South Front. And South Front is a Russian-centric website. Without getting into the details of the thousands of deaths in the Donbass region. The position of Russia has been that there's been an increased attacks in the Donbass area by Ukrainian forces. One such attack was on February 20th where units of the Ukrainian Army's 79th Airborne Assault Brigade crossed the Seversky Donetsk River and attacked positions of the Lugansk People's Militia near the village of Piernesko. With massive artillery support, soldiers attempted to assault one of the observation posts. The Ukrainian army suffered losses and was forced to retreat. But as a result of the aggression, the Ukrainian army strikes resulted in five residential buildings being destroyed, with a number of civilian casualties being reported. A South Front, February 23rd, 2022, article just one day before the Russian invasion reported, quote, The Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic of Representatives' offices at the JCC reported that the bombardment of those territories by the Ukrainian armed forces has significantly increased. In the Luhansk and Donetsk areas, the people's militias recorded 114 incidents of shelling by the Ukrainian side. A massive shelling on the village of Zolete resulted in the destruction of a residential building. As a result of the shelling, seven residential buildings were damaged in the village of Vislava Gora. The shelling of the village of Spartak led to the ignition of fires in these buildings. Additionally, since 2014, according to the investigative journalist Paul Antonopoulos, in an article he posted back 
in December, December 6, 2021. Since 2014, about 130 burial places of missing persons have been discovered. It's not known how many more there are. According to Dario Morozova, the head of the Commission for the Search of Missing Persons in the Donetsk, more than 3,000 claims have already been sent to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. We have reported this in the past, as well as that many of them were obviously executions. This all goes without saying, as we've reported on other shows, that Vladimir Putin had resisted for eight years recognizing the independence of these self-declared republics of Lugansk and Donetsk in the Donbass. But the Duma has urged a reversal of that position, and Putin apparently has relented. And that decision by Putin effectively declared that the Minsk peace process was over. In an article by Joe Loria of ConsortiumNews.com, Putin, Kiev, puppets of U.S. difficult-to-verify size of Kiev forces on the front line. He reports that these two provinces declared their independence on February 21, 2014, following the U.S. coup of the Viktor Yanukovych government. What we have received in the United States leading up to the Russian invasion was an unrelenting movement of Russian troops to the border and that they were going to invade. What's been left out of that propaganda is that the violence of the continuing conflict had soared from the Ukrainian forces into the Donbass area. What was also largely left out of the narrative was the neo-Nazi composition of the Ukrainian cabinet following the coup and the neo-Nazi forces in the Donbass area. The third element that was left largely unaddressed and out of the narrative is Russia's national security concerns regarding its western border, concerns that it has expressed for nearly two decades and have gone completely ignored. Joe Loria writes that the OSCE has monitors on the ground at the time of the separation between Ukrainian forces and militias in the Donetsk and Lugansk. The OSCE provides daily reports on ceasefire violations and the number of explosions and usually indicates which side the fire came from. He indicated that the recent maps published by the OSCE showing where the explosions have landed clearly indicate that the vast majority of the shells have fallen within separatist territory, meaning they originated from the government side. The formal recognition of Donetsk and Lugansk by Putin was precipitated, according to Russian authorities, by the increase, a significant increase, in these attacks in their border area. And not just the number of attacks and the number of deaths, but also the sophistication of the systems being used by the Ukrainian army increased as they began using for the first time since 2018 the BM-21 Grad. It's a mobile multiple launch rocket system. Meanwhile, the United States Secretary of State Blinken claims that they're all false flag attacks to justify a Russian invasion. Meanwhile, without evidence, the Washington Post and the New York Times are, are both blaming the majority of the shelling on the militias. Loria writes, What is curiously lacking in Western media reports of events in the Donbass is any mention of the size of the Ukraine government forces along the line of confrontation. The United States and European newspapers and televisions repeatedly show detailed maps of Russian forces near the Ukrainian border, but never show any Ukrainian military positions. 
Loria concludes, understanding the size of the Ukraine government deployment is key in helping to determine if an offensive has begun. Not mentioning it at all suspiciously appears as if an offensive is being covered up. Meanwhile, what goes largely unreported was that in mid-February, the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Vershinin told the UN Security Council that 122,000 Ukrainian military forces were lined up at the front with Donbass with the possible intention of launching an offensive. There are also unknown numbers of neo-Nazi groups such as Azov Battalion and the right sector reportedly at the border. So while it is difficult to verify the 122,000 number, for it to go completely unreported gives you an indication that the mainstream media has no interest in providing balanced information to the American public regarding this conflict. So please stay tuned as we segue into a very informative segment with D. Knight, the author, humanist, activist, and historian. Today is March the 3rd, 2022. This segment we will be rebroadcasting on Monday, March the 7th, 2022 on Bringing Light into Darkness. We have a return guest, very excited to have found that D. Knight is available for some reflections. So, Dean, thank you for rejoining Bringing Light into Darkness. Yeah, thank you. Dean, I just recently published a very intriguing book called My Whirlwind Lives, Navigating Decades of Storms. It's a political memoir and manifesto that was published in 2022. Our focus tonight, I wanted to indicate there's so much concern about this Russian invasion. And there's been an avalanche of demonizing of Vladimir Putin well before this invasion. And I have not had the opportunity to share for some time some of the reflections that the great Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies and Politics at Princeton University and New York University, that, that would be Stephen F. Cohen. We lost him a couple of years ago to death. But he wrote an article back in 2018, really specific to this demonization of Putin. And I wanted to just run through this real quick before we turn to our guest reflections on the current issues. But in his article, War from Russia, and I just wanted to say that Stephen Cohen was very rarely given mainstream media time, but he was fluent in Russian and he visited Russia frequently and he developed contacts among intellectual dissidents and government and communist party officials. He wrote or edited some 10 books and many articles for The Nation, The New York Times, and other publications. For a time, he was a CBS TV commentator and counted President George Bush and many American and Soviet officials among his sources. Cohen indicates the position on Putin that neither sees him really as a demonized leader, as he's routinely portrayed in the U.S. media, nor as a saint. And he indicated a couple of quotes that I wanted to highlight real quick. A recent scholarly book, which was recent back in 2018, which is, it looked like it was of April 16th of 2018, finds, for example, that while accusations that he was corrupt, Putin, quote, and the liberal technocratic economic team on which he relies have also skillfully managed Russia's economic fortunes. A former IMF director goes further concluding that Putin's current economic team does not tolerate corruption and that Russia now ranks 35th out of 190 in the World Bank's doing business ratings. It was 
at 124 in 2010. I think what's really important is viewed in human terms, Putin came to power in 2000 and some 75% of Russians at that time were living in poverty coming out of the uh, previous epoch there. And most had lost even modest legacies of the Soviet era. He writes, their life savings, medical and other social benefits, real wages, pensions, occupations, and for men, life expectancy, which had fallen well below the age of 60. In only a few years, the quote-unquote kleptocrat Putin had mobilized enough wealth to undo and reverse those human catastrophes and put billions of dollars in rainy day funds that buffered the nation in different hard times ahead. We judge this historic achievement as we might, but it is why many Russians still call Putin Vladimir the savior. So what we get is propaganda. What the Russians get is a great backing of this president. He's very, very popular. I'm I'm sure some of that is changing with the post-invasion. But Dee, thank you for joining us. I wanted to ask you, you wrote an article fairly recently in Covert Magazine, February 22nd, just a couple of days before the invasion. And it highlights the OSCE, which stands for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's some 57 states from Europe, Central America, and North America. And it highlights the OSCE documentation of what has been completely neglected in the mainstream press, namely that, as Putin had said, there was a very large increase in offensive actions by the Ukrainians towards the east on the border there of Russia, where the Russian speaker in the Donetsk area uh, predominate and such. Can you highlight a little bit about what you found to be the facts on the ground in that respect? And then any other reflections you want to make about what Vladimir Putin's really about? And thank you for joining us. Well, I'll do my best. First, let me just say that it is extremely challenging to identify all factors at this stage. But it is good, I think, to recall that the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe did show that the escalation of shellings that took place immediately prior to Russian troops going into the Ukraine were, in fact, carried out mostly by the Ukrainian government. And the OSCE says that means they're the ones, again, provoking Russia, even though the U.S. media paints Russia as the aggressor. And that's, I think, critically important now that virtually all Western reports basically call this an unjustified Russian invasion of the sovereign state of Ukraine. And there is no mention or virtually no mention of the continuous assault by both Ukrainian government forces and the uh, neo-fascist Azov Battalion and other neo-Nazi elements constantly attacking the people's democracy in eastern Ukraine that ultimately Putin and the Russian government officially recognized just before going in. I think it's reasonable to point out that Uh, virtually all Russian military activity of significance has been in eastern Ukraine, with the exception of encircling Kiev, the capital. But it's notable that they have not moved into Kiev. Rather, the Russian military has actively secured 
the Russian-speaking areas of eastern Ukraine, not only Donetsk and Luhansk, but really going right down the southeast coast, including Mariupol and on to Odessa, all of which... And Kyrgyzstan, right? And Well, Kyrgyzstan is the port uh, just to the east of, of Odessa, yes. I mentioned Odessa rather than Kyrgyzstan just because it's reasonable to guess that it is a strategic objective of the Russian military operation. It's useful to recall that in early 2014, after the U.S.-backed what they called uh, Revolution of Dignity, and which others have called a fascist coup, uh, one of the first things that happened was that neo-Nazis attacked a labor union center in Odessa. And what we basically see now is that the so-called invasion, uh, which is uh, causing uh, some to characterize Russia as an imperialist, has largely focused on protecting the Russian-speaking population of eastern and southern Ukraine, something that I consider notable. And I think that there has been essentially no acknowledgement that the Russian military action was very, very clearly provoked by NATO. It's interesting, I live in New York and was to some degree involved in publishing a statement from the the International Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America, a statement that has been repeatedly attacked in New York City media. The New York Post on February 28th said DSA blamed the U.S. and NATO imperialist expansion for helping trigger the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it quotes the statement that DSA reaffirms our call for the U.S. to withdraw from NATO and to end the imperialist expansionism that set the stage for this conflict. It goes on, while the failures of neoliberal order are clear to everyone, the ruling class is trying to build a new world through a dystopian transition grounded in militarism, imperialism, and war. I mention this just because that statement was considered on its face so outrageous that the right-wing New York Post would quote it as an outrage, basically, together with photos of uh, AOC and Bernie Sanders. That's off topic. Uh, Forgive me. No, that's fine. That's fine. We have just a limited amount of time. So just to wrap up, I wanted to indicate that I do very much appreciate your article in the Covert Action magazine that highlighted the OSCE findings. It's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's not just OSCE. There's other findings that indicated an overwhelmingly disproportionate increase in these bombings into the East. And and when you think about how this invasion is being portrayed and the, you know, Vladimir Putin in his speech after the start of the, the invasion said, look, you know, it's a denazifying and a demilitarization. I think the demilitarization specifically spoke to what you were indicating with the, that the uh, OSCE findings support and other findings support as well. The denazifying, of course, is very much connected to your alluding to the horrific massacre in Odessa where several dozen people were burned alive, were run into a trade union deal for protesting an illegal coup, and then it was set afire, and then they were not allowed to escape. Some of them were even shot at as they tried to escape a burning building and such. And so 
these are images that Putin has shared. Uh, he's spoken about Odessa on several occasions. So no matter what people that have this incredibly pejorative opinion of Putin think about, that's why I started this segment off with the, the segment from Stephen Cohen. He's called a murderer. Biden called him a murderer. Yet Stephen Cohen said, you know, when we went to look for the evidence of these poisonings and the connections to the Putin and his government, there's none to be found. So with that being said, I just wanted to thank you, Dee, for joining us on such a short segment here. Your knowledge and understanding of this area is powerful. My pleasure. Let me just intervene very, very quickly to highlight the importance and significance of negotiations and to make it clear that the Russian uh, leadership has continued to make itself available for negotiations and very much wants to find a negotiated solution to this. And if anything, the official U.S. position has been to poo-poo any serious uh, desire for negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. It's notable that the Chinese government has offered to mediate these negotiations since it maintains a friendly posture towards both Russia and Ukraine. I believe that there is every reason to think that negotiations can and will take place and will find a basis for it, at least once U.S. pressure on the Ukrainian government to avoid negotiations is eliminated. Well, I will say this to end the show, that the propaganda war is being decisively won by the West. At this point. At this point. And that's why they don't want Arguably, that's why the West, they do not want to end this. I mean, that was the whole point is to disconnect Russia from the EU and developing Russia-EU trade relations there, etc. So in a very large sense, they've gotten what they want. But the facts on the ground are much, much different. And history, an honest review of history, I believe will more accurately be reflected by the overview that you've given and others have given on bringing light into darkness. So thank you for your time. Okay, Uh, thank you. Take care. Before we close out the show, I just wanted to thank a number of people that called in during bringing light into darkness last week to support the show, to support co-op radio. I cannot tell you how grateful I am other than to just share, share your names and thank you so much. Some of these folks I know, some of them I don't, but they include... David Formal from California, James Rath from New York, Gary Farr from right here in Austin, Texas, Kent Anschutz from Austin, Texas, who shared that uh, Pedro for Secretary of State had to get that in. Rodney Gamble from Austin, Texas, Doug from Austin, Texas, Gary Wright the Dreamweaver from Beverly Hills, Florida, Ken Hayes from right here in Austin, Texas and Costa Rica, Gerhard Kess from right in Spicewood, Texas, Kathy Hebert from San Antonio, Texas, Wardy Thompson from Austin, Texas, Les Carnes from Driftwood, Texas, Chris Cates, the Professor Quee from Baltimore, Maryland, and an anonymous donor, Blumenthal from Austin, Texas, and Jeff Hubbard from Maryland. 
and Steve Reesing from Austin, Texas. Thank you all so, so much. And a huge thanks to Amanda Hasso and Greg Ciotti, my co-hosts. And God help me if I left anybody out. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Yeah.